Holy Spirit as you came upon the believers on the day of Pentecost and filled them. We ask that you now fill us, that we may understand your word that we are about to hear and hear expanded upon, talked about. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. After I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Did you slap your thigh on the slapping of the thigh verse? It's one way to read scripture. Those of you that are note takers, um, the notes that are in the bulletin are notes that I actually like better than the notes I have in front of me. But I'm not so good that I can just rewrite my sermon in eight minutes. I could write something, but it would not be worth your time or mine. So it's going to be a little bit old school if you're a note taker, and if you're not, nothing really changes for you, and I don't know why I'm holding my son's drumstick. <laughs> if you have a, an ESV Bible that has notes, um, you know, partial or full concordance, when God describes his heart, there's a number by it in some of your Bibles. Anybody see that? Like a little one, really tiny. You've got to have your readers on to see it if you're over 35. And it's got a notation at the bottom that says bowels. This is a sermon about the very guts of God as he's describing them to the nation of Israel. This is about God's yearning. How's God wired? That's how we would say it today, I think, in 2022. Trying to get at, like, the motivation of someone. I met someone in Simsbury recently who's, um, I don't think, a religious person um, in any formal way, and he found out I was a pastor, and he goes, is that your motivation, huh? And I was like, that's interesting. No one's ever said it that way before. I said, yeah, yeah, I think so. What's God's motivation? 
And where do we begin that discussion? We begin it with the text. In my experience, most people, I don't know if I should say most people, when people say something about who they expect, understand God to be, they begin with their experiences. And your experiences matter. Your experiences are part of how you both learned to do life and do life and, and the lens with which you understand things and interpret your emotions and all the parts of you, they matter, but we have a text for a reason. It's verifiable, it's trustworthy, and if we have a text, then we begin understanding who God is through how he describes himself, and especially when he describes his heart, or in this case, his guts. God yearns deeply. I've really enjoyed uh, this sermon series in part because I worry about you people. And sometimes in my over-concern, I get tactical. And sometimes in my over-concern, I start thinking about your circumstances. And they're very complicated. All of your lives are, are incredibly complicated. I'll give you an example. I read an article in The Atlantic about a month ago, and it said that in the first year of a child's life, parents have to make 1,750 unique decisions. But once you have a second child, it's all just easier, right? My friends who are retired in Connecticut... I understand anecdotally from them that that is actually complicated to do. You have extended family. There are a hundred reasons that all birth a thousand reasons that could lead me to think tactically or life coachy. But what's better is to equip you with the knowledge of the heart of God to then approach those 1,750 decisions with the grace of God, the wisdom of God, and some knowledge of the very guts of God. What motivates him? I was a big fan of uh, City Slickers. City Slickers fans? Do you know Jack Palance won an Academy Award for that movie? Best Supporting Actor. I know it was 1992, and I love movies more than almost all of you. (laughs) And his Academy Award is based on, in no small part, his speech to Billy Crystal about the one thing. And he says, you have to figure that out, and they they joke about it. And he's not wrong. If God exists, if there's good news in Jesus, if by faith in him and the mediation of the Holy Spirit, we receive life today and eternally, then indeed, that is the one thing that it's about. God's yearning is to remember and restore his people. His yearning is for exiles. Jeremiah has written both uh, before, during, and as the exile of the southern nation of Judah and the northern nation of Israel are taken away, destroyed, besieged, horrifically, to Babylon. Chapter 29 is quoted all the time because it's good news and beautifully said. And it is addressed to exiles. The New Testament 
writers, after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, began studying the Old Testament in light of what they had learned about Jesus, and they learned so much from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a sad and challenging book, a book that still applies to how people turn away from God and go worship other gods, and God allows us to experience the pain associated with that. And I'm worried that when I say that, you think I'm just talking about like they didn't sing enough or something. They were sacrificing children to false gods. And so God gave them over to that through the Babylonians. The New Testament is so informed by Jeremiah that uh, Paul in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 takes on the language of exile to describe the with God life anywhere in the world. First and second John deal with this tension almost every verse that followers of God are first citizens of heaven. That's from Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14. Paul uses the language again in Ephesians 2 verse 19. Peter uses the language in chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. And Jesus prepared them all for it in John 14 through 17 by again, almost verse for verse until chapter 17, contrasting the way of Christians with the natural ways of the world. God's yearning was given to exiles, and the New Testament totally appropriates this language as both a literal and a metaphorical reality for you and for me. And I notice all the time that we're uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable because we want to have a home here and that desire is legitimate and it leaks out of us in our idolatries of stuff. It leaks out of us politically when we're mad at the other side and we're a little bit more mad. Now listen, your frustration, disorientation, anger at most politicians with the possible exception of Jimmy Carter, though he didn't do a good job, it is legitimate. (laughs) But sometimes it's disproportionate. Am I right? Is that just me? And that disproportionate shows that we can become uncomfortable with our status as exiles. We can become uncomfortable with the fact that our allegiance is to Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jeremiah 1 through 28 is the story of people turning from God. And then, Jesus, and then Jeremiah, through the Holy Spirit's leading and words, coaches the exiles in chapter 29, and in this section of the book, chapters 30 through 34, is the book of consolations. And the book of consolations comes from the very heart of God. What does God do? He remembers. Revelation 7 is perhaps the most beautiful example of this. God never forgets his people. We need philosophy to help us understand that in light of our experiences, but we have the promises of God given here and elsewhere in the scripture. God never forgets his people. God's very bowels are for the exiles and and first giving them agency. It's not in the text that Mike read, but in chapter 29, this is what the Lord says. I'm in verse 4 of chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And this is not a metaphor for the people of Israel, but the New Testament, the reason I read so many scriptures is to hopefully convince you that the New Testament fully appropriates this teaching for followers of Christ. And among other things, it means that a Christian person can live anywhere and seek its good. The challenges will be different. The nobilities and drawbacks of that place will be different. Uh, Some of you know that I... I have a Jeep, and it is 23 years old and not in great shape. It makes funny noises, and I think has an aftermarket stereo system. And I was driving by the high school, and I stopped at the light by the high school, and a kid goes, hey, is that custom? And I was like, (laughs) if you're a car person, this is extra funny for you. And I was like, nope. And he goes, it's cool. And friends, I have some nice clothes, and I'm not cool. So I'm like... What's going on here? So I go to Fitz, I was going to Fitzgerald's to just buy a few things, and the, the guys at the register looked young, and I said, guys, can I tell you just, there's no line. I'm not holding anyone up. And I said, guys, can I just tell you what happened? And you tell me if these guys were messing with me or not? <laughs> and apparently, and I don't care, like I don't, about, I just, was, I had no idea. And they said, apparently, by and large, Simsbury teenagers don't mess with you that way. They either mess with you straightforwardly, or not. And I was like, well, that's kind of on the nose. And like, but there are good parts to it too. And I was like, okay, sure. The point is, if we accept our citizenship in heaven, if we accept that we're exiles, we can seek the welfare of whatever city we find ourselves in and learn more about it and then seek the welfare even better. This is part of the reason that we call our local efforts of service and evangelism faithful presence. If we never tell the good news of Jesus, we will be failing. But if we're always telling the good news of Jesus instead of just running a solid blood drive, then it'll not go well. I was playing basketball recently and one of the guys who does not come to the church, I think he's a, he is a Christian, he goes, Matt, I'm coming up to your church later today for the blood drive. And I was like, great, Glenn. And then some of the other guys, and one of them, I'm positive, is not a Christian because he's been very clear about it with me. Um, I was like, I should do that. I used to give blood. It's a good thing. It's a good way of being in the world. And I was like, yeah, way to go, Paige, Colin, Antonio, Lida, Julie, Peacock, the people who set up the blood drive and gained us a pretty good reputation for most of the time running a pretty good blood drive. That's us seeking the welfare of the city. Sometimes absolutely needs to involve evangelism. What we're known for around town is day camp, which is explicitly evangelistic, and they know it, and they send their kids expecting them to have fun and hear the good news. I hope that you know the places that you're called to and not called to. You have limits. This is your at least monthly reminder that you have limits. Time, space, knowledge, etc. But God's heart is to restore, but it's also agency. The restorer of hearts gives people a new heart. People with a new heart can't but seek the welfare of the city. 
You follow me? Now I'm actually working backwards in Jeremiah. A little bit later in chapter 31, he describes the new covenant, which is what we receive by faith in Jesus, as being given a new heart. So that's chapter 31. Going back a little bit, the restorer of hearts gives new hearts, and then we can't but seek the welfare of the place we find ourselves. And there's a beauty in this that's indirect. God demanding our full allegiance frees us from idolatry of other allegiance. You know what your family desperately needs? Is not for you to put family first. It's for you to put God first. And then what's lovely is you're better at loving your family because you're not expecting things from them that they cannot deliver. God's yearning for exiles is agency and restoration. Look at verse 20. I do remember him still. This is the second half of verse 20 in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Therefore my heart, my bowels, my guts yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ephraim there in the poetic, prophetic language is all of Israel. We are engrafted into that. John 15, followers of Jesus. God's heart is to restore you because, and this is why the series has been so delightful to me, and if you're tired of hearing it, good, I'm glad you heard it. And I will bore you for 30 seconds and it's essential. God's heart to restore you is because it's who he is. One of the things that has delighted me about this series is I believe the key antidote to legalism is not eviscerating legalism by preaching Galatians, though that's important. It's preaching the actual heart of God. That's the key to us not believing that I need to behave so that God, dot, 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 but to believe that God did this, therefore it must be a life of life to obey him. It must be joyful to learn to avoid temptation. It must be joyful to pray, to receive these ordinary means of grace and the extraordinary means of grace from the table. It means we're constantly mortifying the flesh, just to borrow some language from Romans, which sounds oppressive unless we're doing that because Jesus freed us. It's the, the heart of God yearning for us to not harm ourselves or neighbor and dishonor him but to live. This morning after um, my wife and my teenagers left the house, it was just myself and my son, and he was destroying my wife's office, so I had a few minutes to think more about the sermon. And um, I was thinking of the ways that I get to repent to all of the humans in my house. Occasionally, my dog, I will never repent to a cat. You can just deal with that. I just can't do it. I'm not sanctified enough. But I'm delighted to repent to the humans that live in my house because it's a joyful act of obedience to God and provision for me to love them better. It's not oppressive. It doesn't cause me anxiety or shame. It does in the moment when I realize, but it doesn't ultimately Because the good news is not that we feel ashamed, therefore change. It's that Jesus took all that on himself. 
that we might live. Why? Because that's who he is. Just a little bit later, Jeremiah, describing the new covenant, which builds on the old covenant, says this, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. This is referenced over and over in the New Testament as what Christ did for us to restore us and lead us into real life because that's who he is. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our minds are so grateful for who you are. Our emotions are moved and our very being is changed forever because of who you are. Lord, many of us heard better obey or else growing up instead of, there's a joyful obedience, but it begins with the heart of God. Holy Spirit, would you untangle those things within us that distract us or, help, or, or lead us to misunderstand your heart? Father, would we know that your heart towards us is good? Jesus, would in our imaginations you help us see your face as it truly is? Holy Spirit, would you unshackle all the pieces of the world in our former story that would block our joy into the life you have called us into. Amen.